Good morning. I'm Bill Eco, and it's my pleasure to introduce Stephen Cook, uh, who's going to speak to us a little bit about Turkey and what's happening in the region. Uh, Dr. Cook is, as you can see in your program, the any uh, Enrico Mattei Senior Fellow for Middle East and Africa Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, but an Arab expert on Arab politics, Turkish politics. He's actually an expert on the Middle East in general. If you read some of his writings, uh, he focuses on our policy towards Syria, Israel, the Middle East, Turkey, and all the interplay in that region. So hopefully in Q&A we can get into a little bit of that. But we're going to start with a focus on Turkey, whom, as some of you were just mentioning, withdrew their ambassador from the United States this morning. And so perhaps uh, he'll tell us a little bit about why that took place. Uh, they also withdrew their ambassador from Israel, so we know why it took now place. Now we know. <laughs> anyway, without further ado, Dr. Stephen Cook. Give me one second while I turn my phone okay. off. Okay, now I'm ready. Yes, I was able to successfully turn off my phone. Thank you all very much. It's uh, it's great to be here this evening. Thank you so much for the for the invitation and the and the warm welcome. Um, what I thought I would do is kind of briefly go through where we are in U.S.-Turkey relations uh, these days, um, give you a flavor of the of the debate that's going on here in Washington and the debate that's going on in in Ankara, uh, and then I'll sit down and we can open it up to Q and A on basically anything that I talked about or anything else that's going on in the Middle East, and a lot of these things are actually interconnected. Um, obviously, a lot of things, uh, what happened yesterday in Gaza, what's happening today in Gaza is on, uh, on people's minds. There was the Iraqi election. Uh, obviously, the situation in Syria continues. So there's a lot going on in the region. And it, it's, Turkey is connected to all of those things. And that is actually one of the, the justifications for strong U.S.-Turkey relations, that if you just look at the map, and you look at Ankara in the map, it sits almost at the geographic center of some of our most pressing foreign policy concerns, whether it's in the Balkans, whether it's Eastern Mediterranean stability, whether it's in the Black Sea and the Caucasus, or whether it is in the Middle East. And of course, the Turks did withdraw their ambassador from here in Washington today over events in the Middle East yesterday. So the Turks do have a, a, a role to play. Although I must say that Ambassador Kilic is not the most popular ambassador here in Washington, leading some Turkey experts to quip, had I known he would be leaving Washington over the embassy move to Jerusalem, I would have advocated for it. In any event, um, there tends to be uh, a view of Turkey that is a carryover from the Cold War period, which is in and of itself a kind of overly romantic view of U.S.-Turkey relations. And that is that, and, and if you're a reader of the New York Times, the failing New York Times, you will notice some of the kind of cliches that are often used in talking about the U.S.-Turkey relations. Uh, the idea that uh, we stood shoulder to shoulder uh, to meet the Soviet challenge, we died together in Korea, uh, that Turkey is of enormous strategic importance. And this is, um, in ways, of course, you know, I remember not, I, I don't remember most of these events. I'm a child of the, of the, of Cold War II, I guess the Reagan years. And Turkey was often referred to as very, very important during that time. But a lot of the nuance, a lot of the problems in the relationship have often been papered over. And it was easy to do that 
when there was a common threat, when there was a Soviet Union out there, it was easy for the Carter administration. Anybody here serve in the Carter administration? I don't want to offend anybody. Uh, uh, it, it, it was easy for the Carter administration to lift the arms embargo on Turkey uh, that was put in place after its invasion of Cyprus in 1974 and kind of sweep those differences un under the rug. That's just one example of major differences between the two countries. Since the end of the Cold War, there have been a number of efforts to find that common project or that common set of goals or common set of interests that will allow us to work on bigger projects and sweep some of the problems that crop up or that are always there in the relationship under the rug. And the immediate, in the immediate end of the Cold War, it was Turkey's alleged role in helping with soft landings with Turkic republics in Central Asia. Turkey would be a model for the stance and that there was this cultural affinity between Turkey and these countries that would make it easier and advantage Turkey over Russia in influencing the future political trajectories of these countries. That didn't really work out. That was the early 1990s. The mid-1990s, the idea came about as a result of strong strategic ties between Israel and Turkey, that Israel, Turkey, and the United States would be forces of stability in the Eastern Mediterranean. No one quite realized, though, that the growing security ties between Israel and Turkey between, let's say, 1996 and 2000 were really just a function of a specific moment in Turkish domestic politics. And once the Justice and Development Party was elected in 2002, and although relations continued for a time, there was always going to be a downgrading of those strategic relations. Next came the idea that Turkey could be a broker of peace in the Middle East. And for a while, that seemed like a real possibility, given the fact that the Turks had good offices with the Syrians and good offices with the Israelis. Um, but a series of events, including, including the Justice and Development Party's patronage of Hamas, made this, uh, made this uh, more difficult. And then, of course, most recently, after the Arab uprisings, which I refuse to call the Arab Spring, uh, you'll have to read my recent book to understand why, or just use you know, your knowledge of the news to understand why we shouldn't call these things the Spring. Um, the idea was that Turkey was a model of a democratizing, prosperous Muslim society, and that it was uniquely positioned to help countries like Egypt and Tunisia and Yemen and other countries and Libya make those transitions to democracy that everybody thought would happen uh, starting in 2011 and 2012. None of those projects, big projects, worked, leaving the United States and Turkey merely with a kind of romanticized past uh, from which to continue their alleged strategic partnership or model partnership or strategic alliance. But in fact, things are very different. Now, let me ask you for one second to suspend the word Turkey from your mind and just think about a country that is doing the following things. Purchasing Russian air defense systems, threatening to rescind permission for American access to an air base from which the United States guarantees that country's security. 
promises military operations in a neighboring country which the United States has sought to stabilize over the course of the last 15 years. Complicating American efforts in yet another country, and that is its neighbors, warming of ties. Uh, that's the same ring as my wife. I kind of thought my wife was calling you. Um, war- Do you guys know each other? Uh, that would be... That would be incredible, right? What, what a Washington story that would be. Forget this lecture. That would be perfect for the style section. Anyway. Um, uh, warming of ties between this country and uh, an enemy of, uh, of the United States. Undermining efforts to contain uh, that enemy. Engaging in an elaborate effort to undermine sanctions against this enemy country, uh, building a military base in the Red Sea that is destabilizing the situation, uh, whipping up uh, feelings throughout the Muslim world about American policy in the Middle East, uh, attacking American officials and private citizens over a failed coup d'etat in that country, arresting Foreign Service nationals who serve the U.S. Embassy in that country and holding 15 to 20 dual nationals of that country and the United States in prison on trumped up terrorism charges and holding a trial of an American pastor in that country on trumped up terrorism charges. Encouraging young children to take up jihad. In what world? In what world would American officials advocate having strong strategic ties and a partnership with a country that has done all of those things? And one thing I forgot to mention was the fact that the security team of the president of that country beat up American citizens just a few blocks from here last May. In what world, in what world do American officials uh, members of Congress and their staffs advocate for the continuation of strong strategic ties between those two countries in the world in which we live. Because everything I described are things that the Turks are actively doing uh, when it comes to the United States. Now, that's not to suggest that the Turks don't have a long list of grievances against the United States. They do. I could probably go through one that is just as long which only proves the point that what we have to do when it comes to U.S.-Turkey relations is not necessarily punish the Turks, as some members of Congress would like to do through sanctions or the Magnitsky Act. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, Although in some cases that may be warranted. Or we should not be doing the other option, which is the two poles of the debate in Washington. We should be doing everything possible to save the relationship between the U.S. and Turkey relations. I've heard the most phantasmagorical stories about how we are going to save the U.S.-Turkey relations in this environment. What we should be doing is recognizing change and figuring out how to manage change. A lot of people who are advocating understanding the change in U.S.-Turkey relations have talked about moving towards 
away from a strategic relationship to a more transactional relationship. Now, I presume most of you served in countries where there was a certain asymmetry of power, given that we have always been the big kid on the block. Well, it strikes me, as someone who is an observer, that our idea, America's idea of transactional, is saying thank you sometimes to countries for carrying our water doing things they, they wouldn't otherwise necessarily do. I don't think, though, that the Turks are even interested in transactions because at those moments of goodwill uh, in the United States, when, for example, uh, in response to the arrest of Foreign Service nationals, the United States put visa restrictions on Turks seeking to enter the United States, and then the United States subsequently lifted those restrictions. Or when the United States sent a team from the State Department and the Justice Department to work with the Turkish Ministry of Justice to develop evidence against Fethullah Gülen, the Turkish cleric who's in self-imposed exile in Sailorsburg, Pennsylvania. So that, by the way, if you listen to Erdogan's speeches, he often refers to Pennsylvania. He will not utter the words Fethullah Gülen, who was once an ally of his. He won't utter the words. So he constantly rails against Pennsylvania. As a, as a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, when I go to Turkey, I make sure to leave my Pennsylvania T-shirts at home, sure enough to get me thrown in a, in a, in a, in a Turkish jail. With those moments of goodwill, when we have done things to help Turkey on their in, in, when it comes to their interests, when we continue to obfuscate the Armenian genocide for Turkish sensitivities, that goodwill is often not returned. It is pocketed by the uh, Turkish government as they continue to pursue their interests, which are often in conflict with the United States. Last couple uh, 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 of words on, on this issue. It's clear that Turkey and the United States don't share interests, and they certainly don't share values. Turkey is perhaps the most repressive country in the region around it, and I'm including Egypt. It is the world's leading jailer of journalists. It has 60,000 political prisoners. 200,000 people have been purged from Turkey since July 2016, a purge that did not begin with the failed coup d'etat, but an extension of a purge that began in early 2014, which is just an extension of a purge that began actually in 2007 and 2008. Rather than, though, punishing the Turks because it makes us feel better, rather than seeking ways in which to save the relationship and return it to the model partnership in the famous words of President Obama. As I said, we need to manage change and recognize the change in the relationship. And that means, and I'll end here, that means working with the Turks where we can, and there are places where we can work with the Turks. Here I'm thinking about the Black Sea. Getting out of the Turks' way in other places, here I'm thinking about the Balkans, working on separate parallel tracks, but not with them in the Balkans, and in other places, opposing the Turks. And there I'm thinking specifically of the situation in Manbij, in northern Syria, where the United States has a fairly significant military presence in which it works with a local Syrian fighting force called the People's Protection Units, which was set up by the PKK, a terrorist organization that has been waging war against Turkey since the president 
was married to Ivana Trump, which is a long, long time ago. Needless to say, though, the Turks have not been very helpful in our mission in Syria in fighting the Islamic State and in helping us to contain Iranian aggression there. And in fact, their policy has un in ways tried to undermine those efforts because we work with the People's Protection Unit. And that is a place where we need to oppose the Turks. And there are, there are other examples. I just wanted to give you a taste of the real fundamental and significant change in the relationship. And most importantly, however, it's policymakers have to change the frame in which they think about U.S.-Turkey relations. We are still wedded to the idea that Turkey is this indispensable ally. It's of critical strategic importance to the United States. And that if we just engage in more intensive diplomacy, we will make the current government in Turkey understand why it's important for them to be on our side. But in a way, that's an odd way of thinking about things because the Turks certainly have their own agency, their own way of calculating what their political and strategic interests are, and their own means for carrying it out. And their complaint is actually that they don't want to be seen as an asset to the United States in the pursuit of American interests in the region around Turkey, but they have their own interests and their own goals, and whether they conflict with the United States or not, that's basically... Uh, that's not going to change. Uh, oddly, this view of Turkey that I've just articulated about this change, this, this different tracks that the two countries are on, is often met with an unhappy response from many people. But it's odd to me because we're talking about a country almost 30 years after the Cold War. Uh, I only know of a very few people who haven't changed in the last 30 years. And certainly, Turkey and the United States have changed. Thus, our relationship with Turkey needs to change. With that, um, like I said, I'll open it up to Q&A uh, based on everything that I've said about Turkey or things that I haven't said about Turkey, things that I've left out. And there's lots to talk about when it comes to Turkey. Um, or uh, all, the range of issues that are, are buffeting uh, the Middle East and the United States in the Middle East. But I'm going to sit down while I do it because my coffee's over there. Thanks so much. So let me uh, kick this off just to ask you to sort of go back in time a little bit to tell us how we got here. Because when I first went to Austria in 2009, uh, you know, think Turkey was on a, in a much better place. Turkey was in discussions with the EU about potentially joining the EU. Uh, you know, there was resistance in the EU, but it was the discussions were going forward. Erdogan struck me as a reasonable leader, intelligent, articulate, not the autocrat that we see today. Since then, he has become this incredible autocrat. Uh, he rails against Gulen uh, and blames him for the coup, even though our and us. and us, our intelligence community, can't find any link between Gulen and the and the coup, uh, from, at least from what I've seen. And uh, but that it makes it, it it's a popular bogeyman, I guess, to blame everything on Gulen. But he's been incredibly repressive, and yet Turkey is a member of NATO. And where do we go from here with Turkey? 
Uh, is there any way to, you know, I don't see any way to turn this guy Erdogan around, but how did he, how did he shift from, mm -hmm. you know, this ally to this repressive autocrat that he is today? Uh, it's, a, it's a great question, and I can break it down into, into two spheres. First, uh, on the foreign policy change is fairly straightforward. Um, the Justice and Development Party, which is a party of Islamist patrimony, it is the latest iteration in a number of Islamist parties that were closed either by constitutional order or by coup d'etat in, uh, in Turkey. And it, it began as a split um, for, within one of those old parties. Uh, and Erdogan and Abdullah Gul, the former president of Turkey, and a number of others were the young reformists within that Islamist movement, and they wanted to distance themselves from an old guard that was habitually opposed to the European Union, habitually opposed to NATO, uh, that had a rather more insular, actually more Kemalist view of the world. Kemalist being the kind of uh, views of the world that uh, supporters of Mustafa Kemal, known universally as Ataturk, had. Um, deeply suspicious uh, of the West. And this group of young reformers uh, saw things very differently. They saw European Union membership as a means to their goal of fostering a truly secular uh, government in Turkey. What you have in Turkey now is not really secular, but there's no Turkish word and English word that equal each other. So we use secular, but it's more closely associated to uh, the French system of laicite, uh, but kind of on steroids, in which the government controlled uh, expressions of religion. And the Justice and Development Party saw the EU as a means of secularism, actually secularizing Turkey. When you ask them in the early part of the Justice and Development Party, you'll like this story, and those of you who, who served in Europe will like this story. When you ask them, well, what was your model for secularism? You served in Austria. Anybody here serve in Switzerland? Uh, because you, they would say Switzerland. Switzerland is our model, the model of secularism in Switzerland, but then Switzerland banned the, the building of minarets for mosques, and then Switzerland was off the, was off the <laughs> table. They stopped talking about Switzerland. Um, but the e in addition to having an EU membership, they said, hey, we have this great legacy. We are the inheritors of an Ottoman civilization, which was a great empire for 600 years. But of course, since... Mustafa Kemal Ataturk's reforms in the 1920s, Turks have been cut off from their history. They don't read Ottoman Turkish. So it gave an opportunity for the Justice and Development Party to develop a kind of stylized version of Ottoman history. And they valorized Ottoman history at the expense of a more nuanced history, as I suppose all governments would do. But within that, it said, that modern Turkey, the Republic of Turkey, should take a leadership role in the Muslim world and its region, because it's a big, important country, and thus began a more active role in the Middle East for Turkey, a more active role in the Caucasus, a more active role in the Balkans, a more active role in articulating Turkey's own views and own interests in all of these places, rather than, not that this always happened, but rather than articulating these views and then going along with what the United States or the Europeans want to do, which was the view that these people, the, the new leaders of Turkey viewed, was that Europe wasn't the enemy, NATO wasn't the enemy, US wasn't the enemy, but we weren't going to be 
the junior partner. We were going to be a full and equal partner. And from that came the 360-degree foreign policy, which was most closely associated with a guy named Ahmed Davutolu, who's now no longer the foreign minister or the prime minister. He's actually under house arrest. But that tradition carries on of a 360 foreign policy in which the Turks will speak truth to power and pursue their own interests. So that's how we've gotten the, 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 the divergence on foreign policy issues, not that we were always so one away. Domestic politics is the most uh, shocking, in ways, developments in Turkey. Um, this was the early era of the Justice Development Party, in which they pushed through four constitutional reform packages through the parliament that led to the European Union inviting Turkey to begin actual European Union negotiations that began in March 2005. That's extraordinary. Nobody expected that to happen. To make a very, very long story short, the reason why Turkey went off the rails was a number of things. One, Erdogan, as an Islamist politician, is paranoid, plus he's a great politician. All great politicians run like they're 10 points behind three days before the election. And he runs like that every single day. And as I said, he's an Islamist politician, and he always believes that the next coup is around the corner. There's a whole host of other issues that are related to this. The insoluble differences between Turkish ethno-nationalism and Kurdish ethno-nationalism, uh, an international environment that ironically even though the Arab uprisings was happening, didn't lend itself really to democratic transformation and a number of other issues. But think about three things that happened in 2007 and 2008, and you can understand why Erdogan would smash that broad-based coalition that he rode to power and why he would undermine that consensus-building, more moderate uh, way of going about change in Turkey for pulverizing his opponents and implementing his broad vision for Turkey's transformation virtually on his own. The first was in May 2007, when Turkey needed a new president. The old way Turkey got a, a president was the parliament nominated somebody and they, the parliament elected him. And because the Justice and Development Party had a, a majority in the parliament, they nominated Abdullah Gul, one of the founders of the party who was serving ably as a foreign minister and a potential rival to Erdogan, so they figured they'd kick him upstairs to... The, to uh, to the presidential palace. Well, on the eve of this, the Turkish military, who had undertaken four coup d'etats in the previous 40 years and banned Islamist political parties at different moments throughout uh, this 40-year history, issued a statement on its website saying, not good, we're not going to go along with this because Abdullah Gul's wife wears a hijab. She wears the Islamic headscarf, and it has no business being in the Çankaya Palace, the presidential palace, causing a huge crisis, protests, no to military rule, no to Sharia law, et cetera. Erdogan, sensing an opportunity, called an election that he won with 47% of the vote, and Gul became the next president. He won that. He won that round, but it convinced him that the establishment was going to do everything possible to try to prevent him from ruling and governing the country. The second thing that happened just a couple of months later, a cache of weaponry was found in the basement of uh, an Istanbul apartment building. And I'm not just talking about handguns. I'm talking about rocket-propelled grenades, I mean weaponry. And what the police discovered was that there was a conspiracy among retired military officers, currently serving military officers, academics, journalists, 
the criminal underworld. Can you imagine getting all those people together in one room in this country? That would be a weird meeting. Anyway, um, this conspiracy to foster and forge instability in the country so that the military would come out to the streets and end the government because the government could not secure the country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, this conspiracy, and this conspiracy is contested, but this conspiracy became a conspiracy within a conspiracy within a conspiracy because what Erdogan did with, by the way, his great ally at the time, Fethullah Gulen, Pennsylvania, was turn the tables on all of their political opponents, real and perceived, and threw them all in jail. Trumped up charges, forged documents, and so on and so forth. He won again, but there was something to what became known as the Ergenekon conspiracy. There was something that began, and it convinced him that the establishment, the military, the white Turks, as Erdogan refers to them, were never going to let him rule and govern. And then the third thing that happened was the prosecutor general filed a case in Turkey's Supreme Constitutional Court charging the party with being a center of anti-secular activity, which is a violation of the Turkish Constitution. After months of deliberation, the Constitutional Court found, in fact, the party was a center of anti-secular activity. Now, previous to the Justice and Development Party coming to power, that would have meant automatic closure of the party. But because of some of these EU-related reforms, the number of votes on the Constitutional Court were not enough to actually close the party, so it was fined $20 million. Again, another example of the establishment not seeming willing to allow the Justice and Development Party lose. Out went, as I said, moderation, consensus, gentlemen's agreement with the military not to heat up the political system, and Erdogan sought to pulverize his opposition. A strategy of political polarization was the strategy from 2008-2009 up until now, and he's been successful in every election since, with some electoral chicanery here and there to get him past, uh, past the post in a few instances. That's how we've gotten to what a promising EU candidate to the most repressive country in the region. You've often written that uh, U.S. foreign policy is too often dictated by domestic politics rather than by our strategic interests in the region. So what would you do today? It seems like we are, you know, we've got this whole issue with the, the Kurds in Syria who have been our allies in fighting ISIS, and now we have to shove them aside to make Turkey happy. And it seems like we're doing that. Does that make sense? Well, I'm not I'm sure. sure we are. But, I, I, you know. I think, and let, let me just say that I do, I do policy, not politics. And let me say that there are instances of where politics has crept into our foreign policy. This is not just a, a, a Donald Trump problem. Um, we've seen this before in, in, at other moments. But if you look at the president who has, from what I understand, historically low approval ratings, but an energized base, he's staring at a um, – a, a midterm election where people are predicting uh, a wipeout for the Republican Party, and he is trying to energize his base. And I think the Kurds are a casualty of American domestic politics, for example, because this is a problem. If there's one thing that 
this president and his immediate predecessor share, that is a desire to retrench. That is a desire to get out of the Middle East. President Obama's statement was, don't do stupid expletive. That was one of the logics, one of the theories, one of the things planks upon which I ran was to get us out of the United States, not get us into wars that sap our strength. Well, Donald Trump, in his own Donald Trumpian way, has articulated a very similar view of the Middle East. When he said, we spent $7 trillion on the Middle East, we could have rebuilt the United States three times. That's an argument that I think resonates with important parts of the president's base. So when he says, we're leaving Syria very soon, people say, thank God, my son, brother, uncle, father will not have to go to Syria. Um, just like when he says, I'm pulling out of the JCPOA. He said it was a horrible deal, getting out of it. He said NAFTA was a terrible deal, he's getting out of it. He doesn't like uh, TPP, getting out of it. So that when it comes time for the elections, he can say, look at all these wonderful things that I've done, look at all of my accomplishments. Now, people don't vote on foreign policy, but at least they know that even if, if the steel mill isn't coming back, they won't be deployed to manbidge. Because what do they have to do with man bitch? They want to steal mill back. And so he promises that's coming. And I think the Kurds are a casualty to that. What the problem with it is, is that we actually genuinely now have some strategic interests in a place like Syria, and the Kurds are our allies there. The Iranians are intent on building a land bridge from Iran to the Mediterranean. That threatens our interests in the Middle East. The Russians are a power broker in Syria and increasingly influential throughout the Middle East in places you wouldn't think they were influential, that is not just about the Middle East, but that is about a Russian effort to weaken the West. And I think our interests are engaged there. Uh, and that's why, you know, I've been called a warmonger before. I guess I'll be called a warmonger again. I disagree. I don't think we should be leaving Syria very soon. Jim, Ambassador Respepe. I wanted to go back to the uh, early part of the last decade in terms of the first period. God, I can't remember Monday because all the I crazy understand. things. I understand. I understand. No, Tuesday, you, 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 the early part of last decade. Okay, I'll try. I just mean in terms of Erdogan and, and the party leadership in Turkey. Sort of two kind of related questions. One is sort of the why did he go the way he went. You told the story about how he and his folks wanted to get close to the European Union. So question number one is to what extent was the European Union slow walking, pulling Turkey in, a big determinant of Erdogan and Turkey going in the other direction? If they had done, a, if, if they had done what we did last year with uh, Montenegro and, Na and NATO and said, come on in now, would that have ch materially changed what Erdogan did? And related to that is you talk about the opposition of the the deep state in uh, Turkey and the... Where there actually is a Where there is actually a state. Yeah. No, I understand. Uh, the military. Um, the fact that they wanted to take back power what, couldn't have been a surprise to anybody. So did he really think in 2007 they'd gone to sleep? So to, to what extent did he misjudge internal politics? To what extent did the European Union, at least from the U.S. point of view, make a mistake by slow walking? And that led to what we have today or not. <laughs> Sorry for the long question. No, no, no. These are, and they're terrific questions. Let me, let me try to answer them quickly. Um, 
I think the problem with Turkey, and, and I have been vilified by Europeans for saying this, I think there is a direct connection between what happens in Brussels and what happens in Ankara. Uh, and you can see it in, you know, when Brussels has been encouraging of these reforms, the Turks really used Brussels as an anchor for a, a, a Kemalist reformation in, in Turkey. Uh, and when that slipped, the Turks have tended to, tended to slip. That has to do with actual polls. The more that Turks believe that they're going to get into the European Union and all the benefits of it, they push their government in, in that direction. I think the problem with the European Union is it has never really, well, when it comes to Turkey, it did make a decision of what it, what it is. It's not a club of democratic countries that have come together based on common set of norms and principles, but rather a geographic, a club based on geography, essentially coterminous with predominantly Christian countries with small Muslim pockets in it. But to welcome in a country of 84 million Muslims was too much. You can make all kinds of technical arguments why Turkey can't join the European Union. But you can imagine a resolution to those problems. We were seeing that in 2003, 2004, 2005. But so, which would suggest that if Europe was a club based on norms and principles, at some point in the future, Turkey might be able to join that club. But if it's a geography based on Christian countries, it's not, it's not going to join. And it's had an impact. Now, I lay all of the blame on the Justice and Development Party in internal dynamics, but Europe's turn from Turkey did not help at all. Now, when you talk about Erdogan misjudging in 2007, remember, this is coming after four constitutional reform packages, the beginning of negotiations. Within those constitutional reform packages, the Turks began to subordinate the military to the civilians through the institutions of the state, not by dividing and conquering the military the way in which they've been doing since 2008, but actually through institutional changes. It was the military, the military's misjudgment that, and a misreading of their own domestic politics, thinking that they can issue a statement, a warning on its website, and that the country would rally to them, rather than recognizing you had five years of tremendous prosperity. You had a government that, for the first time, allowed people to express their identities, their religious identities, in ways and in places that were now safe. And how important both of these things were, so that Erdogan captured 47% of the vote in those snap elections, a total that no Turkish political party had captured since arguably the 1950s, although maybe in the mid-1980s, I'd have to go back and look. The military were the ones who we're living in 1980. Erdogan and Gül and their other founders of the party understood the tremendous changes that were underway in Turkish society. Ambassador McCormick. Thank you very much for a, for a, for a fascinating presentation. Thank you. Um, the, um, the book, The, uh, the New Sultan, uh, basically points out that Erdogan will do whatever he has to do to get from point A to point B on the political spectrum in his own country. And if that means denouncing Angela Merkel, if that means denouncing Brussels, he will do it. If that means throwing out the American ambassador, he will do it. If that means 
pulling back his own ambassador from Washington so he has a throwaway line in his next election, he will do it. That's, you take, I take that as a given. Um, my hope would be this. He had to push forward that election um, um, until in this June because there was clearly a budding economic and financial crisis in, uh, beginning to develop in, Cur in Turkey, and I don't believe he could look ahead six months and believe he was going to have a stable economic situation to hold his election. So my assumption is that's why he did it. Um, and my hope would be that after this election takes place, if he wins it, and if he gets the position that he hopes this election will give him, that because he will need more help to maintain his own economic situation in the country through the IMF and elsewhere, that we may be able to gradually nudge him back rather than just let him slip into the hands of Putin and, and the Iranians. Your question, your comments. Uh, first, let me just say that as a general rule, I try not to comment on Turkish elections until two or three weeks out because things never really crystallize until then. I remember years past where people told me that the Yeni Turk Party, the new Turk Party, was going to be the savior, and it had an all-star team of Kemal Dervish, Ismail Cem, the former foreign minister, and someone else who I can't even remember, and that they were the big saviors for Turkey. This was in the late 1990s, and in the election, they got 1% of the vote. 1% of the vote. So let's wait until... Let's wait a month, and then we can have the conversation about what the outcome is going to be. But I take your point about moving the elections up. And let me just say at the outset that this is either the sixth or seventh time in the AKP era that people have been predicting economic collapse. Uh, and it hasn't happened. Um, I'm not saying it's not going to happen. They're due, and all of the numbers – that you look at that aren't Turkish government-generated numbers, the weakness of the lira, and all kinds of things, would suggest that there is a possibility that there will be an economic crisis. And of course, an economic crisis in 2000, 2001 led to this run of, uh, of the Justin. And your logic is absolutely sound. Economic crisis, they'll have to turn back to the IMF. We quietly are the influential party in the IMF, and we'll have some leverage over them. I take all of that as uh, a, a strong possibility for Turkey. But I don't think we should get locked into this narrative. As I said, there is been at least six other occasions where we've uh, predicted economic collapse. And not just by, you know, random Joes on the street in Washington who think they're the smartest person in the world. They're talking about Turkish businessmen who said, this is it, you know, at least six times, it's gonna come, it's gonna come to an end. Um, Erdogan has done much to insulate himself from criticism of uh, pending bad economic times. Uh, the uh, constant refrain about the interest rate lobby, the constant refrain about uh, conspiracies about uh, weakening the lira uh, because of Turkey's enemies who are jealous of Turkey's success. His calls for Turks to burn dollars, can you imagine? To burn, and people go out and do it, um, has insulated to some extent. He moved up the elections for a number of complicated reasons. One, having to do with this potential economic crisis. Two, they've had some success in their military operations in northern Syria. And you cannot keep the country on this kind of nationalist war footing all the way through to November 2019, which is when the elections were supposed to happen. 
the moment was ripe. It's before the alleged collapse is coming. There's been some military success. The United States is at its height of unpopularity. So what's better for a Turkish politician to say that my transformative vision of Turkey, which has benefited you all, which has created this incredible amount of growth, expanded the middle class, given you health care that won't be repealed and replaced, that has given you infrastructure, that has given you options uh, for your socioeconomic advancement, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, plus you can be pious Muslims in the public square, and the United States is trying to at least complicate this or undermine it by their support for Fatou de Gulen and a variety of other factors, along with their accomplices in the Kurds. It's a perfect storm of good news and bad news on which to run and which to get a majority in the parliament. Because if you get a majority in the parliament, as a result of the referendum in April 2018 that's changed 18 articles of the Constitution, you can rule with no checks and balances whatsoever. Today, theoretically, there are checks and balances. But the way in which it's been arranged, as long as the president and the majority party in the parliament are the same, there's no checks and balances in the, in the system. I think we're going to have to One last point, and then there. we're done. All right. <laughs> Under those circumstances, well, no, no, it's, Turkey's complicated. How do, even in an environment where there is an economic crisis and they need us, Erdogan's been in power for 15 years. He's likely to be in power for maybe another 50, 15 years, not 50. There can be Erdoganism without Erdogan, is all I'm saying. All right, well, listen, uh, we're, we're out of time. We're Thank you time. so much. I was just getting warmed up. Exactly. No question. Thank you for no questions about Gaza or Jerusalem or anything. That was like the that. next was question, nice. but uh, on behalf of the Council of American Ambassadors, thank you for joining us, and we'll present you with something that you can Excellent. proudly display have, on I your desk. I have lots of coins in my office, and this will proudly be displayed. <laughs> there you go. Thank you all very thank much you all. for your time. Now we have the next session.